Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you this morning. This has been such a fun weekend. Um, and I am just blessed to even be here and just to uh, hear from this worship team and to worship together, to worship the living God. It has been such an encouragement to my soul this morning, and I'm so excited to be with you. Um, as Brad had already mentioned, uh, I've been married to my wife, Dory, for nine years at the end of this month, and we have two boys, Hollis and Porter, uh, who are the most important things about our family. We have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, uh, so needless to say, Sunday mornings uh, can be a hoot sometimes, trying to get us to church on time. Um, but before we get going, I just want to take a second to thank you as a church um, to be able to be with you this weekend for your pastors and ministry leaders to host a conference like this is special. And to be able to honor those who are working in the technology industry is special and it's encouraging to my heart. I especially wanna thank pastors Mark and Brad for hosting me this weekend, as well as the, all of you who volunteered. You volunteered in KidThink, uh, which is an amazing ministry in which you're pouring into the next generation, as well as the countless volunteers who put on a gathering like that over the weekend, as well as a Sunday service like this. I also want to specifically call out Shannon Lewis and the team, uh, just for the great job. Yes, give her a... It has been uh, so well done this weekend, and it has been so much fun to be with you and to be back with you this morning as we dive into God's word. I know that each of us come to a place like this with a, a lot of different things on our mind. Our minds are running in a thousand different directions, and so as we gather to hear from God's word, to continue in worship, I just wanna pray and ask God that he would speak to us this morning. Father God, we thank you uh, for this church. God, we thank you for the ministry of your word. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have given us clarity and insight about how we are then to live. No matter the age, whether it's the digital age or the analog age, God, you have called us to a specific way of living. Would you open up our minds and our hearts? Would you focus us on what you have for us this morning, not to be distracted by a host of things going on or even things going on on our phone this morning, God? Would you focus our hearts and our minds on this? Would you speak to us? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, as I told you, I have two boys, so a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and I alluded to the fact that Sunday mornings is a little chaotic at times, trying to get us out of the house. So my kids are early risers, uh, so they immediately come into it, right, and they're raring to go on Sunday morning. Uh, my wife and I, maybe not so much. We're still trying to wake up. I need a good cup of coffee as we get going. We are ready to go. We're trying to get everything together. We're trying to get our boys dressed, get ourselves dressed, make sure we do all the things, get the snacks and get the toys and get everything ready to go, pack up our things, rush out the door. Hopefully I've turned off the lights. Hopefully I've actually shut the garage door, which is what I'm notorious for is thinking I shut it, but I'm not positive. And so I'm like, babe, did I check? Did I close the door? And she's like, I don't know, that was your job. And so then I have to inevitably turn around and go back by the house to make sure that I've done that. And then it happens like clockwork. And I'll tell you, it literally just happened. About 20 minutes ago, I got a little notification on my phone. It said, uh, your uh, screen time was up some obscene percent last week. And it's really not the most encouraging reminder on a Sunday morning as things are already a little stressful. We're trying to get going. Maybe like you, you get that same exact notification. It tells you your screen time was up whatever percent. Let's just say I'm not overly proud of my high score that week. This isn't a game, I don't really, I want that score to be lower, kind of like golf, um, but inevitably it keeps creeping higher and higher each week. And that is something that I carry on the back of my mind all the time. 
especially on Sunday morning. I always joke to my wife, I say, get behind me, Satan, not my wife, the iPhone. <laughs> and yeah, that would have been bad. She would have heard this and I would have been, uh, yeah. But I feel like most of us live with a low level guilt often about the time that we invest in our screens. Maybe it's guilt and shame for the way our children seem fixated on their devices. Maybe it's the way that you, mom and dad, or brother and sister, or grandma and grandpa, feel like you're always on your phone. That little simple notification that we get on Sunday morning is not really about the notification itself, is it? It represents so much more of, the, of what I've done that week and often what I didn't do that week. Not just the time that I spent on my phone, but the time that I neglected maybe my wife, maybe time that I neglected my boys who were vying for my attention, but I seemed glued to my phone, even after work, when I'm supposed to be investing in them. Maybe it's neglecting my closest friends, where often we live in an age where our friendships, our closest friendships even seem mediated or connected through technology, and it's just maintaining them. While I hope that many of us take the advice that we learned throughout this weekend about reforming our habits and our hearts, about the way we approach technology, that technology is indeed a good gift that God has given us, but it is something that can enslave us. It's something that can draw our attention away from God and away from our neighbor and to ourselves in a very self-focused, self-centered world. From the, did you hear me? Which is a very common question in my family. To the, can you just put your phone down? Or can we just put the iPads away for a little bit? To the time wasted to have complete and total honesty to be face-to-face with people. Technology, especially social media and our phones, don't seem to be making our lives all that easier, do they? We were promised this almost utopian vision at times of deeper community and connectivity, richer relationships, and more access to information than we could ever hope to have. And in many ways, those things are true, right? But isn't it kind of weird that we feel more lonely, that we feel more isolated, that we often feel that the world revolves around us? In this environment, it's tempting to treat other people as just simply a means to an end, to treat them as something that I get something out of. In this age that was promised to have more and better connections with others and free access to all of this information, we feel more isolated and lonely than ever before. And there have been countless studies to show this time and time and time again, we're angrier, we're lonelier, we're more isolated. We were promised all of these big things of richer community and closer friendships, but I think it's pretty clear that that ship has metaphorically sailed as we often try to fight back the temptations of technology and long for truer and more lasting and deeper friendships and relationships. So in the midst of all of the shallow and self-focused connections, the all about me kind of culture that we live in, how does God call us to live in light of those realities? How does God call us to live in a life-giving and honest, transparent relationship with others that we desperately need, but also that we were created for? In our text this morning in Matthew 22, Jesus gives us a short summary of how he would call us to live our lives, no matter the age we live in, no matter the time, no matter the challenges, God gives us a very clear directive. I always think it's funny that that mysterious will of God is like, what is God calling me to do in this specific situation? Or what is God calling me to do in my life? And what should I major in in college? Or what should I study here? Or where should I go? This mysterious will of God often. You wanna know what the will of God is? He tells us exactly in Matthew 22. 
he calls us the summation of the Christian life of how we are to live radically different than the world around us. This radically different way of friendship, especially in a digital age that focuses us and turns us outside of ourselves rather than this kind of inward pursuit. As we'll see in the text, it points us upward and it points us outward as we pursue loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. As we dive into the passage this morning in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, I wanna start giving a little context of what this passage is about and how we can seek to start to apply these truths to this idea of pursuing true friendship in a digital age, which is kind of our main point this morning, that Jesus is calling us to a radically different way of life in a digital age. This passage specifically has played a crucial role in the history of the church. It's served as the backbone and pillar of the Christian ethic. Now, if you're not familiar maybe with the ethics language, this is simply the way God calls us to live. It's not just our beliefs, but it's our actions. What do we do? So we talk about the nature of the Christian life, how we are to live. This is what the ethics is. And it summarized, Jesus summarizes all of the law and the prophets, all that God has revealed to us in scripture in this very passage. This is often known as the double love command, to love God and to love our neighbor. And it's not only a reminder of the centrality of love in the Christian life, but it's that summation of all of the law and the prophets. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been tested. This language we see even in verse 34 and 35 about how the lawyer was asking a question to test him. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, he's already been tested by the religious leaders of the day from questions about how, how and what type of taxes we should pay to Caesar to questions of marriage and the resurrection. These religious leaders, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are not asking honest questions. They're not asking honest questions of him and asking them how then they should live. Their goal is actually pretty clear if you take it in the context of what Matthew is saying here. These leaders, these religious leaders are trying to pin Jesus up against the wall. They're trying to find a way to condemn him and to ask questions that they hope will cause division and disunity within the, the community. They're trying to stir the crowds up and to turn them against Jesus. In verse 33, we read, when the crowd heard it, heard his teaching, they were astonished. There is a power in Jesus's words. There's a power in Jesus's teaching. And let's just say the religious leaders of the day didn't like this. They were trying to pin him. They were trying to, they were the ones who were keeping God's law, but Jesus was teaching the law in a way that challenged their authority. And it upended this self-orientation, the self-oriented religious way of life. Yes, they acknowledged that and sought to honor, the God, honor God in their words and in their mouths, but they had added to God's law and they had failed to see the ultimate point. They were saying one thing, but they were doing another. And let that be a lesson for all of us, that we can say the truths of God, we can sing the truths of God, but if we live in a way that is contrary to what we say and what we believe, that is, that's anathema to Christians. It should be completely the opposite, that our actions are modeling and representing what we say we truly believe. Now, for some of us, when we approach a passage like this, we may think, well, we're kind of the passive crowd. That's really where we are. We always try to find ourselves in the story. Reality is, is that we're a lot like the religious leaders. We're a lot like that in our sin. We are no better and we're no worse than these leaders because all of us 
seek after this self-centered, kind of self-focused life. That's the nature of sin, by the way. We are sinners before a holy God who are seeking to rebel against God's good design and his rule, to go our own ways, to set up our own little kingdoms, to set up our own little queendoms. And this isn't just a problem of the digital age, this is the problem of humanity from the very beginning. But we live in an age where technology is exacerbating that and making that easier, ever easier, because we live in these personalized little online worlds where it's my posts, my likes, my follows, my platform, me, 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 me. It's all about me. And Jesus is calling us to a radically different way of life. Now it's easy even here to think that these are simple, genuine and honest questions that the lawyer's bringing, but remember the context. They're seeking to trap Jesus, to discredit him and to sow discord in the community. This lawyer likely thought we finally have him, we've got him. That whatever he's gonna say here is gonna be controversial, it's gonna stir up division and we can finally supplant him and take over and take over that authority. So verse 36, we read, teacher, the, the lawyer says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I think some of us, when we get asked really difficult questions, sometimes we cower in fear, like, I don't really know the answer here. I don't know how to play. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't really hesitate. We don't see that in the text. He's very quick to it. When we are often pressed up against the wall with these difficult questions, we fail, we get nervous, we think about ourselves and how we're gonna be interpreted and how we're gonna look and we try to portray this certain type of life and that especially happens in a digital age. Many of the religious leaders of the day and even in ours seek to divide God's commands. They were seeking saying, what's the greatest commandment? Tell us number one. Now, they were, there's often, as you were reading through the scriptures and studying this, you would realize that there are a lot of commands in scripture. There are some that are light and some that are more weighty, but they're all of God's words and he calls us to live in light of those. Given the breadth of the question that Jesus is being asked, the lawyer was seeking to open Jesus up to criticism and damage his reputation in the community, especially with the crowd that had been gathered to listen to his teaching. Here the Pharisees and the Sadducees are likely expecting to hear one of the 10 commandments. When we often say, well, what is God's law? We naturally go to the 10 commandments as kind of a summation of the law, the summation of the Christian life. This may be what the Pharisees and the Sadducees expected to hear. But interestingly enough, he chose something else. He chose something else that his listeners would have been very, very familiar with. In verse 37, we read, and Jesus said to him, the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So let us take a couple minutes to break down what Jesus is doing here in this double love command which I think is especially relevant in our, in our day, in our digital age. First, we see love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is this vertical orientation. So in our, in our sin and our sinful patterns and rebellion against God, we are often focused on me. What's in it for me? It's all about me and what I can get from other people, what I can get from God, because ultimately my life is about me, my truth, my reality, my identity. On the outset, Jesus is calling us up to take our gaze off of ourselves and to point up to God, to love God with everything that's in us. This passage would immediately have stood out to the people in the crowd, why? Because it's a quote actually from Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema. 
This is something like a Jewish confession of faith. And this speaks to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. The Lord God is one. This would have been something that they would have learned early in in their childhood that would have been kind of beat into them in some sense. And it would have been almost second nature. So the moment he said that, they were like, oh, I see what he's doing here this Deuteronomy 6.5. The point here and point of this passage is that to love God, we are to love God with every single fiber of our being, wholeheartedly, to include our hearts, to include our minds, to include our souls, to every single aspect of us. We are to love God in total, not withholding a single speck of our lives from him. Now, I think it's easy for some of us to live a more compartmentalized life, we may come to a Sunday morning gathering like this or a small group, and, but our work, that's separate from God's purview and his authority, right? We just kind of do our own thing or maybe it's my social media habits or maybe it's my family that, I'll, God, I'll let you in here, here, and here, but this is kind of my area, right? Jesus is calling us to this radically different other-oriented life this wholehearted devotion and satisfaction of finding love in God, of seeking to love God with everything about us. Everything about us is to be put into service for God because what is Jesus' model? Jesus models, even as you get to the end of this gospel, that he gave himself up for us. This is the gospel message that he emptied himself out. He poured out his own life. He gave up everything so that he could pursue after you so he could come after us, so that we could have that relationship with God. Without that relationship with, for, with God, we can't love God. We can't truly understand and know God, nor can we love ourselves. This vertical dimension of pulling our other, this self-oriented love and pushing us up and outward is reorienting our natural and sinful pursuit of pursuing ourselves first. It's lifting our eyes off of the things of this world and focusing on the one who made the world who made us in his very image and he calls us to live in a distinct way in light of those things. He cares for you. He sustains you. He's with you at all moments. Here, Jesus is calling us outside of ourselves to point our gaze up, which I think is especially needed today of all days, where we live in a world saturated with technology that's all about me. Loving God points us outside of ourselves in an age that encourages us to look inward for truth, for peace, for comfort, and so much more. This other-oriented love is revolutionary. It's countercultural as it reminds us that we were not created for ourselves. We were created for a higher and better purpose. We were not created to do life alone. Christian, you are not a lone ranger. This isn't all about you. We need each other, which is a beautiful sign of gathering together as the people of God each week, right? We need each other. We need to be in the presence of one another. God created us for this. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. This is a revolutionary call because it calls us out of that compartmentalized life. There is not one aspect of your life, Christian, that isn't God's, that isn't under his authority. He has given you everything and you owe everything to him. Your life is not your own. You do not pursue your own truth, your own reality, your own identity. Your identity, reality itself is fixed outside of you and the one who created everything. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't just say to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. He goes on, doesn't he? Which I think is kind of interesting because he's asked for what is the greatest commandment? And he goes on to give him two. 
And I think that's kind of an interesting, and a lot of scholars have debated, but I do think as you read this, maybe your Bible says the same as mine. There's a little heading. By the way, editors came in and added those. Those aren't original. But they summarize it as the great commandment. Not the great commandments, plural, but singular. Why? Because the first is intricately linked to the second. To love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind is to love our neighbor as ourself. There's this vertical orientation to lift our eyes up to God, to focus off of ourselves. And by looking up, we also look outward. This horizontal way of loving, of loving God, of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Even though Jesus was asked for this single commandment, he goes on in verse 39 to say, and the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're to love our neighbors ourselves, which again is a quote. This is the beautiful thing. Jesus isn't giving new commandments. He's actually fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's telling us what God has always said, what God's plan A was from the beginning. Jesus is helping us to see the point of it all. Now he's quoting here Leviticus 19:18 that would have been widely known again to the crowds there, especially to the Pharisees and the Sadducees which I think is fascinating. Remember, Jesus here isn't calling us to a new commandment per se, but reiterating what God has already said, what he said in previous generations, what he's revealed to his people and showing what their ultimate point is. Again, here, just like the, the command to love God, we are to likewise be out, called outside of ourselves to love God vertically and horizontally to love others, which guess what, isn't about you. The Christian life isn't about you, it's about loving God and loving our neighbor. The part of this commandment we see is this horizontal focus of the Christian life around us, outside of us, to your neighbors, to those sitting next to you right now in these seats. That that's what we're called to do is to love sacrificially, to love those and to seek to cultivate even deep and abiding friendship and relationships, even in a time that is focusing us on ourselves and our devices to keep our eyes and gaze down. Our eyes are to be called up and to be called out in this outward expression of love. I think one of the best ways that we can define what does it mean to be a true friend, true friendship, especially in a digital age, is an other-oriented love. You wanna know what it looks like to be a good friend? Is to put them first. You wanna know what it looks like to be a good husband or a good wife? Is to put your spouse first. You wanna know what it looks like to be a good father or a husband or a mother? To love your kids and put them first. To put them before you. And there's this crazy thing that happens. When I put my kids first, I often feel more fulfilled than when I put myself first. It's kind of amazing how the Lord does that, right? Calling us outside of ourselves, we actually find fulfillment and happiness and peace, not a self-oriented happiness and peace, but an other-oriented peace that comes from outside of us. I love this quote from the late, great Carl F.H. Henry. He says, love for another is the whole sum of Christian ethics. You wanna know what you're called to do, Christian, how you are to live? You're to love others, to love God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Here, Henry is showing us that the entirety of the Christian life, no matter the age, no matter the challenges, no matter the questions, no matter the difficulties, no matter even the sin in your own life, that you are to love God and to love others, this other-oriented love. Other, this other-oriented love doesn't mean, this love in this passage isn't what we often mean by love and what we talk about love, where it's just like this kind of emotional connection 
or this kind of feeling that we have, like we can love and then it kind of fades. Love, this other-oriented love is not just an emotional connection or a feeling toward one another. It's modeled for Jesus, it's modeled by Jesus in the scriptures where he sacrificed himself, where he laid himself down and we are likewise called to lay ourselves down for others just as Christ laid himself down for us. As some have noted, this, love, this call to love and to sacrifice represents a distinct way of living. Christian, you live in an age that isn't maybe super uh, crazy about your faith, to say the least, often even hostile at times, but you know what you're called to do? You're not called to, quote, just defend the truth by whatever means possible. You are to love God and love your neighbor as yourself and to seek that, to not compromise on the truth, but to do so in a humble and grace-filled way, just like what Jesus did, laying himself down for his neighbor. We see this fulfilled in time, even in Jesus' own words. The people that were here, they didn't know exactly what was going on. They didn't know what was to come per se, but we see this fulfilled when Jesus modeled in his own death in his own burial and his own resurrection, not for his sake, but for ours and for the glory of God. Jesus didn't go to the cross because somehow he was lacking something or he needed something. He didn't, God didn't even create the world because there was something lacking in him. He created as an abundance and overflow of his love, of who he is, who by the way, exists in eternal community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's so easy for us today to feel like we have to be lone rangers and it's all about me, but God doesn't even live alone in that sense. There's a plurality, the Trinity itself, the Trinitarian community is how you have been created. You're made in the image of God, who is a Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You were created for community, you need community, and the best way to live your life is in community, rich and deep and abiding relationships, this other-oriented love. So often in the digital age, we come enamored by ourselves and focused on what's best and easiest, most convenient and fast. We look out for number one. We only seek to accommodate others when there's something in it for ourselves. We feel that often the, the frenetic kind of pace of life, the fast pace, like, oh, I'll get to that or I'll call them next week or I'll do something because I've just got a lot of stuff going on right now. You do, I do. But we're called ultimately to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves, which means sacrificing the things that we want. Social media, often we have our, my profile, my platform. We have my likes, my followers, my inbox. And the list goes on and on because we have this self-focused drive towards convenience and efficiency in every single area of our life. But God is calling us to a radically different way of living. He's calling us to true friendship, true relationship, true community that's rooted in this outward reality of putting others above ourselves and seeking their good above ours. And this will set you apart. This will set you apart in a world that is so fixated on us to see why are these people living so sacrificially? Why are these people living so differently? It's because we have a savior who poured himself out for us, so thus we live in a different way. We have a deep and abiding relationship with God, that vertical reality. We have that horizontal reality of focusing on others and putting them first and above all. This is countercultural in many ways. God doesn't just call us to this way of living for ourselves and for others, but he created, it, created us for it. We're not designed to be lone rangers or isolated and disconnected, which is funny because of all the promises of the digital age of bringing us closer and having deeper and closer relationships, tight-knit communities. That can happen. 
I'm not, a, I'm not anti-technology. I really like technology, actually. I love these conveniences and the benefits, but they have to be used in the proper way. They have to be used in a way that helps us to love God, that vertical orientation, and to love others, that horizontal orientation of this outward-focused love. True friendship, let me be really honest with you, and if you have gray hair in this room, you will totally agree with me when I say this. Real friends aren't always convenient. Real friends are not always even comfortable. They uh, often are very time-consuming and messy, and I'm just speaking of my friends and how they think about me. I'm time-consuming, I'm messy, I'm not convenient, I'm definitely not comfortable. But I'll tell you, those friends, when it hits the fan, we need them. When my wife was diagnosed with cancer about four years ago, who did I call? My best friend. I walked and paced the streets because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I was gonna get through the next day. But who was there for me? My wife, first and foremost. But my best friend Josh was too. And he just listened to me. Did I, was I convenient? Did he have maybe more, quote, important things to do? Did he have things on a schedule and to-do list that he needed to check off? Yeah, probably. I don't think I made life super easy for him in that moment, but I needed him. And he's chose to love me, to sacrifice those things for me so that I could be with him, so that we could have that relationship. And guess what? I did that same thing for him. When things seem to be falling apart, who do we call? Maybe it's our mom, maybe it's our dad, maybe it's our spouse, maybe it's your best friend. How are our friendships modeling this other-oriented love? True friendships are to be intentional. They don't just happen. And it forces us outside of ourselves because it causes us to sacrifice our desires and our personal wants for another. In a digital age, many of us settle for shallow connections. We settle for follows and social media friends, and I'm putting that in quotes, because we have so many friends, but they have no idea what's going on in our life. Because why? Because we portray ourselves in a particular way. Somebody, you see that Instagram photo that seems perfect, and you're like, man, I wish I had that vacation, or I wish I had that house. You don't realize that kids are screaming in the background, that photo's taken an hour to pose and to set up, that vacation maybe isn't idyllic as it looks on social media, it was kind of crazy. Guess what, that's life, all of us. We portray ourselves a a particular way online, but true friends know the messiness. They know the grit, they know the things that don't always look Instagram worthy. But God is here, we're seeing in this passage of loving God and loving our neighbor self to be called to a distinct way of living, one that is rooted outside of ourselves, one that is rooted in putting others and their needs above our own, one that is often messy, that is time-consuming, and I'll be honest with you, pretty difficult at times. It's also one that is beautiful and life-giving and completely counter-cultural. God is calling us to love God with every fiber of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves, no matter the circumstances you face. No matter your job, no matter the pools and pushes of life, no matter the, hot, the valleys or the, de- or excuse me, the depths or even the heights of life, Many of us in this room have these type of other-oriented friendships and relationships, and praise God for that. But I know that not everyone does. I've gone through seasons in my life where I wasn't especially close to my friends. I didn't have a lot of friends. And that can be difficult. That can be isolating. It can be overwhelming. But regardless of where you find yourself this morning, I encourage you to start small. You might go, what do we do with all of this? How are we to, quote, apply this truth to our life? 
Well, it's pretty applicable to love God and to love our neighbors yourself. What do you do? You seek the good of others. You seek to put the Lord, a God, or the creator God above all and to put your neighbor above yourself. One of the things you can do, especially if you have those really good relationships in your family and your church and in your friend group, is to thank them. Maybe you call them this afternoon and just say, I just, I, just, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. You've been there with me. Thank you for loving me and being with me and to sticking with me when life got hard. To try to love others as this other-oriented love that Jesus so well models for us. So maybe double down on that this week with one friend, just one. It's not hard to call one friend and talk to them for a few minutes and be thankful for them. That heart of gratitude and posture is to realize it's not all about you. That's one of the ways you can love God and love your neighbors yourself. But maybe you can even do a full hour this week. This is something I love that Justin Early, who spoke this week, talked about one of the common rules of life is to have one hour, this weekly habit each week of one hour out of 170 plus hours of your week, one hour that you spend in relationships and in friendships of being honest, transparent, you're confessing things, you're being with one another, you're pushing back, you're rebuking, you're encouraging, you're loving one another, but maybe that's too much. I get it, that can be a big goal, especially if you look at your calendar right now and maybe you're getting a couple buzzes about what you're supposed to do tomorrow. Maybe you can set up a Zoom call, maybe you can grab coffee or maybe you can go to dinner or invite someone over to your home for dinner. Maybe like me, your closest friend lives across the nation. My best friend doesn't live next door to me. Maybe you can set up an hour phone call each week where you just talk, you're open, you're transparent with one another and you encourage one another as you seek to love them sacrificially. But for not all of us have that type of relationship and I know that. If you don't have those type of relationships, I encourage you two ways. One, I get it, I've been there. It's difficult, but you don't have to live life alone. That's one of the beautiful things about College Park and about the intentional community that is seek to be cultivated here. I know that I'm just a guest, but even this weekend I have been welcomed in and loved and cared for in so many different ways that have modeled that sacrificial love. You can join a group, you can serve alongside others in a host of ways. You can connect with a pastor or ministry leader to learn how you can get connected here at College Park. Second, so it's, I've been there and you don't have to live life alone, but second, you're not actually alone. It's easy to feel like I don't have that friendship, that relationship, but what was the first commandment? To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. God is with you. Even in the darkest season, even in the darkest hour, God is with you. You can cry out to him. You can invest in that relationship. You can take time and make that relationship the top priority, not a top priority, the top priority this week as you seek to love him with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. No matter where you find yourself this morning, God is calling us to a radically different way of living, especially in a digital age that we live so much of our life mediated through devices and screens. He's calling us outside of ourselves and to, against this vain pursuit of self in our modern world where it's about my truth, my reality, my identity, about portraying myself and who I am internally, but to actually call us outside of ourselves to an external reality, a fixed reality of how God made us, male and female, in his image. Technology can and is a good gift from God, can be and is a good gift from God because it can help us to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. But... 
it also has some inherent drawbacks and pitfalls and sometimes some unintended consequences of focusing on ourselves about what we want and making life all about us. Remember the words of Jesus. You wanna know what the will of God is for your life? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbors yourself. You wanna know how to have a better marriage? Love God and love your neighbors yourself. You wanna know how to have a better relationship with your kids? Love God and love your neighbors yourself. You wanna have better friendships, deeper and abiding friendships? Love God and love your neighbors yourself. This, as Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. This is the first and greatest commandment that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, to love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a place like this that we can gather together as your church, as College Park Church to gather together. God, I'm so thankful for the countless volunteers and those in ministry here who serve and lead so sacrificially. God, I pray that you would give us peace and comfort to help us to focus outside of ourselves, to love others as you would call us to love them. God, that you would help us to love you and to love others above all things. God, in the midst of a lot of the digital distractions of our day and the so many different things that are pulling us and pushing us inward, God, would you call us outside of ourselves? Would you reveal to us how we can apply even your words today in our lives and this week and help us to honor you above all things? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.